This is Coming Into Focus, the podcast about all things mental health, and I'm your host, Jay Wick, licensed marriage and family therapist. On this episode, I sit down with Andy Lobb. Andy is a certified tea master, a mindfulness expert, and a sound healing practitioner, and just an all-around interesting dude. Andy also happened to be my very first guest that I recorded with, and for whatever reason, I'm just putting it out now. So many apologies, my friend. Andy and I discussed the path that led him to tea, ways to develop mindfulness practices other than just sitting and breathing, which incidentally opens up a discussion about our shared interest in contemplative photography. And we finish off strong with a great conversation about fear, faith, and gratitude. This episode covers all the bases and certainly does not disappoint. Enjoy. I, I think one thing that I have to call you out on first to start out here. Oh, oh, oh okay. I'm starting off a little defensive. I was really looking forward to sitting down and having a cup of tea and, and learning some uh, of your knowledge. I, I thought, you know, you could bring me, we, before this podcast started, we could get a little something that's going to make you alert, but relaxed at the same time. And then I had to resort back to an energy drink that I'm just probably too caffeinated. And Oh, no. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can run out to my car because, uh, but that kind of a, you know, bringing you a, a, a cup of tea. Well, you know, I charge for that. So, you know, this right. is... <laughs> <laughs> You're not doing anything for free on this. Uh, to the poor listener, of course I'd have a cup of tea. If, <laughs> you know, a lot of times I worked as a lobbyist for a, a point in time, and I would, uh, there's, there, despite what people think, there's a lot of laws regarding what I can give somebody that I want to talk to about a policy position or something. And I would say, I've got some very rare tea imported from India, and I happen to know that you like the black tea. So let's sit down and have a pot of tea, and we'll, we'll discuss this issue. Well, some of it, it when it, you say that there's like uh, sort of limits on what you can offer people when you're oh, doing absolutely. the lobby, because yeah. they see it as like some semblance of like a bribe or something? Right. If I, you know, it, I don't, I've forgotten what the rules are now, but I think it's as low as if I take you and, and buy you a meal of over $25, we both have to file a, a federal report on that. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, Tea is, is the most uh, reasonable luxury. It is an expensive item, but you can reuse the tea over and over again. And so there's a lot of benefits to wow. using tea as a, uh, an icebreaker, like what we're doing now. I actually ran a, um, uh, uh, I'm laughing because it, it was such a bad program. I did a radio show in Las Vegas, Nevada. It wasn't my show. It was a friend's show. And, and about once a month, I'd go from Southern California up to Las Vegas and we drink tea on air, invite people that call in. And we actually did a tea and chocolate tasting on air. And then we did, we did a uh, the Lapsang Sushong tea, which is that smoky tea. We did that broadcast from a cigar bar in Las Vegas. Sip it on tea, smoke it on cigars. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was, uh, again, we probably had 30, 40 listeners. <laughs> and hey, that's it probably more than we're gonna have on this one well, to start that, out so okay you're right you're right uh so speaking of tea and we just kind of jumped right into that but you are a certified tea master that's right correct. yes so for anybody 
including myself, that doesn't really know what all that entails and how you found yourself sort of in that place. Maybe you have a background of kind of how you got to where you're at now. How did I get started in tea, which is kind of odd. I mean, I, I was a guy who prior to uh, getting involved in tea, I was very, um, most of my life, I was very driven, very anxious, had a lot of stress-related health problems, high blood pressure, carried a lot of weight, kind of a you know, hyperactive attention span. And um, lo and behold, at age 50, which was 17 years ago, I found myself in the McDonald's Center Drug and Alcohol Rehab. That's where I went. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I graduated from that fine institution, mm-hmm. and uh, I was, uh, and have stayed sober ever since. But I, when I came out of there, I was not necessarily... Uh, a calm, put together guy. I got a sponsor. I got sponsees, uh, 90 and 90 uh, meetings. I did all that and I got a heck of a lot better, yet I was still very uptight. And so I went to the Scripps Center for Integrative Medicine. At that time, I was an executive with a gaming, meaning slot machine and casino management company here in Southern California. Yeah, you and I actually had an interesting conversation about that once of like the psychology that goes into the slot machines. The slot machines. Oh, it's but that's a whole separate tangent. Yeah, we'll get into that yeah. some other day. But uh, I went to the Scripps Center for Integrative Medicine and said, hey, I'm an important executive. I want you, you know, and, and, and I'm used to having now people tell me how to do things. Once going through the, you know, the 28-day rehab, I got used to having people advise me on how I had to live my life. And so I said, you know, put me in the executive health thing. And they looked at me and they said, Andy, uh, you need to get into the Healing Hearts program because we have people that are undergoing surgery today that have better health statistics than you do right now as you sit here. You're about to pop, meaning I'm about to have a stroke. About just to have your a stress headache. level, your blood pressure and everything was just like through yeah. the roof. And I mean, and that was the way I lived. I didn't know. I, I mean, I was sober, but I didn't know the way it showed up in the measurements on my body. Of course, I didn't feel very good either. So Which, that, sorry, that, this is a really interesting thing that you're saying though, and I just want to highlight that right. too, because that's a really common thing that I see, even had conversations with friends about this, but clients where it's that, that saying kind of like a fish doesn't know it's in water. You know, if, if you've always lived that way and you don't know that there's another way to be, what do you have to contrast it, you know, until finally somebody goes, they hook up all this physiological stuff to you or whatever. And like, man, you're about to burst. And like, oh, there's things I can actually do to change this. And, and that's what I learned at Scripps. Actually, it, the way it got laid on my face was, it, and it was sort of laid on my face, is as I was doing the intake for the executive physical fitness program, a nurse came in who I thought was a nurse, a lady in a white lab coat. Um, she had the stethoscope around her neck. And she says, Mr. Lobb, um, you know, we're looking here at your family history and, and we think we, instead of doing the executive weight loss program, that you ought to get in the Healing Hearts program. Very polite, very nice about it. She's, I'm sitting down, she's standing next to me. And I say to her kind of, you know, sort of like trying to like be a New York kind of guy. I say, hey, sister, what are you doing? You're trying to upsell me to a more expensive program? <laughs> and... You know, the nurse across from me who was doing the intake, her face goes white. And then the, the nurse, who I thought was a nurse standing up, puts her face about an inch away from my face. And she's the one that says, I'm cracking the chest of two guys today that got better health stats than you. Have a nice life. Oh, wow. And walks out. That was Dr. Mimi Ganeri. Mimi Ganeri is on Good Morning America. She presents at Davos. She works for a month in India with the, you know, with the children there that have uh, heart defects. 
course, I ended up, you know, volunteering for her, taking the courses, giving speeches for her. But that's how I introduced myself to her. She, right. She kind of, you know, laid it out. Ah, she kind of gave you a very matter of fact, like, hey, we're trying to help you, but if you don't want it, screw you. Exactly. Good luck. Exactly. And she, she, she talks actually even more blunt than that. And that's my mindfulness. That's my first exposure to, to somebody that's going to teach me self-compassion, mindfulness, and the way of tea. Is that what that Healing Hearts program was? Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, it's related to heart and all of that, but it was more of like a stress reduction type Absolutely. of program. Oh, yes, wow. it was. Yeah, and that's where I learned, you know, the, the mindfulness, the meditation, the diet, the, the whole, you know, kind of the whole um, holistic health approach in a Western medical setting. I was in the script wow. hospital setting. And this, this was 17 years ago. Yeah, that's correct. Which now it's sort of getting more and more mainstream and mindfulness you hear about it with everything but this was a for a medical setting to be sort of like having a program like that at that time probably was few and far between i would imagine there was only two in the country and oh, that wow. was one of them i didn't know any of this i you know as a lot of things in my life i never saw it coming i just walked into it and uh, yeah that's where actually that's you know that's where i got introduced to healing touch which is a lot of the listeners may be familiar with reiki right you know, uh, Reiki masters and the type of work the Reiki people do. Healing touch is Reiki for the medical people. And I got involved in that against my better judgment. And, uh, you know, what I, they asked me if I would take my aunt to a healing touch training again at Scripps. I said, I'll be a good guy. I'll take her for one training. Well, I went on later and became a teacher and I put on healing circles and been involved in that for many years too. Wow. So yeah, be careful when you walk in and make a wisecrack at somebody who you think is a nurse and is a world-famous heart doctor. Yeah, it might change your life for the better. And that's where tea, and in <laughs> all that, you know, they said, you got to slow down on drinking those, those double hammerhead things when you're coming over here to get your blood pressure checked. So um, what the introduction to tea was at that place, literally? It was they, at that place. And then what was it about, specifically the tea, that, I mean, has everything just been you putting one foot in front of the other and you just keep it just keeps on unfolding or were you like blown away by this tea and something about it at the time that made you go, I need to continue pursuing this and learn more about it. Tea did not have that effect on me. The healing touch did. But so back, back to the tea, because it really applies to more people. You know, I was told I was, you know, addictively drinking coffee and coffee of course has, you know, more flavor compounds in it than almost anything on earth. Chocolate may have a little bit more, but those two compounds have a lot of great flavors. So I'm not dissing coffee. They said, you might want to try tea. And so of course I go to a tea bar that was in La Jolla at the time, close to where I was living, brand new place. And uh, they, they would let you taste different teas. And I was told because, you know, I had for many years uh, in the industry I worked in, I had thousands of dollars worth of cigars that I handed out. I was raising money to build casinos. And so we'd sit on the golf course, smoke these cigars. I had, I worked in an office where the whole wall was a humidor. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really healthy for a guy like me, yeah. you know, with, with, with kind of a, a little bit of addictive tendencies in my, <laughs> my behavior. So I inhaled cigars. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, when it came time to quitting that, that was a hard one too. So they told me because of your trouble with scotch, cigars and a wee bit of cocaine uh, you may not be able to taste tea and i believed him and of course that's absolutely wrong you know you take all that stuff away or even with that stuff your taste buds are still there they were trying to say all that stuff would have just kind of killed your palate and your sinuses and all what you need yeah, to taste things so yeah and also your your nervous system and your awareness and your focus not so 
because now as I take, you know, tea tastings in, uh, into the rehabs, into, uh, people in early recovery, three days sober, when people, you know, when a, God forbid, a unfortunate meth addict doesn't have any dopamine running in his system at all, right? He's burned it out. This brings dopamine back into your system. Tea does. So, you know, it, uh, tea, when I first tasted it, I said, you know, the taste is mild. They told me I wouldn't be able to taste it. I can taste it, I think, but I feel a physical difference. I feel a, a little more relaxed, a little more lighthearted. I feel emotionally different. I feel mentally clear. So tea does affect you physically, emotionally, and mentally. And when I go into the, the rehabs that Jay and I work at, I take in a chart. I did it this morning. And it's a, a chart where you measure your physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being before you drink tea. Now, in the science studies, in eight minutes in normies, uh, a compound in tea called L-theanine, it's L-theanine, crosses the blood-brain barrier and begins to change your perception. It, it does increase the production of dopamine, but it, more so it increases the awareness, the part of your, we can watch the brain scans, the brain open up in other areas. And so you have kind of that open awareness feeling as opposed to a shutdown focused feeling, which then uh, the other parts of tea, which relax, physically relax, it's a vasodilator, meaning the small vessels, you know, open up. You begin to feel relaxed. You're getting an open kind of clear feeling in your mind, and you have a little bit of caffeine in there. That's why the Buddhists meditated on tea. So I have the clients fill out that physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual thing on a one to 10 before and after they drink the tea. And of course, I've done it now. I've got 500, you know, samples in my study. Everybody on average goes up 22%. Wow. Yeah, I know it's pretty amazing. So, and they so they drink this tea. One thing that I just want to sidebar into is it's really cool to walk into the room when you're doing it with the men's groups and not to say it's any different than the women, but just because of our socially constructed ideas and and all these men that are in recovery and they've been through all this stuff and they're tatted up and all this other stuff and then you walk into a room and all of these guys are sitting around drinking their tea and just hanging out and actually like real and they look forward to it. Like they love that group that you do, you know? And they look forward to the different types of tea and all this other stuff. It, it's just a, it's a funny sight to see. And it's really cool to see these. I mean, you get in early recovery and it's scary and it's, you're high strung and all these other things. And then you just have these guys sitting around drinking tea, but to see now you're tracking these things too. And you're seeing that just in an hour long group, they have a, they have a actual measurable change in how they report that they feel. That's correct. And that's really cool. Yeah, and just and, from sipping tea. And Jay knows that the reason I do that is not to impress Jay or to publish a study and make myself famous. It's, as a matter of fact, I do it anonymously. I tell them not to put their name on it. It's to let them know. You know, it's to track, you know, oh, yeah, I felt good, but it, it must have been just because who knows what. No, I want them to know that stay focused, stay present in a mindful way. How am I feeling physically? Well, um, my lower back is sore. Am I feeling emotional? A little bit of heaviness in my heart, a little sad about something. You know, it's, it's the process of becoming aware. And, and just kind of sitting with whatever you're with feeling, it. right? Yeah, and let's yeah. have a cup of warm liquid. That helps. And eventually, it's the camaraderie that develops in a sitting down with somebody drinking coffee or, or a, a group of guys drinking tea. There's a camaraderie that also is going to change the way you feel. And of course, you know, not, now I'm going to speak energetically. You know, our improved vibration, energetic vibrations change a little bit and it changes the people around us. 
So, uh, I mean, I'm interested in that, what you're talking about too. And we can maybe go into a tangent on that, but I've read the studies and things of just groups of people meditating and all of that. And they measure the fields of energy around them. And you actually have that ripple effect where it, it's not just something contained within you. If you have a whole group of people that are all sitting and they're changing their vibration. I mean, everybody kind of wants to synchronize to a frequency. I'm, I might be speaking completely out of turn here, but. No, you're completely correct. That's sci- we're speaking science, but it's also thousands of years of our actual experience as humans. Right. So. Which is interesting. So uh, the tea, along with the, the tea and how you got into it yourself and all of that, it sounds like you were also introduced at that time, 17 years ago, to maybe some ideas of mindfulness and some some different practices, which even the, the um, healing hands and things, is that what you're calling or the healing touch type of thing? All of that is getting more and more popular and sort of mainstream now, but that's also has the, a lot of this stuff is like the space where people would call the wooey wooey kind of stuff. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. But there's, it's sort of catching up to science now too, where a lot of this stuff is really measurable, right? That is correct. So like when you see, I mean, part of, why I wanted to talk to you today too is to talk about mindfulness, meditation, things like that, because that was something that was really transformative and important in my life. But I'm the type of person that when they told me meditate, you know, when I first got sober and I'm go practice meditation, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I just related it to, it's a thing that monks do and you're trying to reach enlightenment. And then I kind of let it go for a while. And then at some point I started reading research on the neuroplasticity and your brain changes, all of these other things. And then that was at least something that I could kind of grab onto and be like, when I'm sitting here just minding my breath, I'm actually doing some, there's some changes or something that's happening. And then I can release that, you know what I mean? But also just to know sitting for 10 minutes breathing is changing me on a, on a molecular level, you know what I mean? And that, to me, that's something that I try to relate over to other people is that it, it doesn't always have to have that spiritual connotation and maybe you'll find yourself down that place. But if you're just trying to reduce anxiety or the thoughts that just race around your head all day, this is the easiest, most available tool that you have is just sit and breathe. Uh, yeah, it is. And the, um, you know, what I teach, you know, first on myself and then others in rehab is sitting and watching your breath is exceptionally hard for normies to do. It's exceptionally hard for us when we get into rehab, right? Because we are, as you mentioned, kind of emotionally strung out. The cops are after us generally. Spouses are after us. All that kind of stuff, right? The right. bill collector. You're digging yourself out of a hole that you don't know how you're going to get out of. Right. You know, and, and, and you don't know if your insurance is going to pay for the, the program you're in. All that stuff. Right. And so, and then a guy like me walks in and says, take a deep breath. You know, I'm glad they didn't do that to me 17 years ago in the rehab. I'd have run out of the room and told them how stupid they were. Right. Like, give me some tangible things to do right now. You're just telling me just sit down and breathe. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, what, uh, there is, um, there is two different, this, the, today's lecture this morning is there's two different types of, uh, definitions of mindfulness that we use. And one is called formal mindfulness and one is informal. Both are very important. Formal mindfulness is what Jay is talking about with the, with breathing and your meditation but it is a focused concentration that we're doing on something. And Jay talked about the neuroplasticity. It's a big buzzword that we picked up in the, in the mindfulness world a number of years ago, and we still are kind of all excited about it. But if you read the book, for example, The Talent Code, not about meditation. It's about how different people in different areas of the world became 
talented athletes, talented musicians, talented golfers, and they go into the neuroscience of it, it's the same kind of neuroscience. It's repetitive actions, focused repetitive actions, like in our case, sitting down and watching your breath. You're strengthening that neural pathway and it gets easier over time. As Jay was saying, we can measure the changes in your brain and in your neural system throughout your body in three weeks. Three weeks. Doing that, 10, doing that 10 minutes a day. That's wow. what got the mindfulness-based stress reduction course, kind of the, the Western world's foundational course on meditation. That's what made it so famous is it was not only you know, evidence-based, there's been dozens and dozens of scientific studies. But so back, back to just you and what we do and what you do, there's, there's sort of several different avenues that you go down that, that you, you have your hand in several different pots, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. there's the tea part and you bring that into the rehabs and you have these guys do this. You uh, are a mindfulness practitioner. And I mean, beyond just somebody like myself that has read a few books and sits and meditates in the sauna at the gym or something, you know, like you've gone on, I'm assuming like retreats and you said you've yes. sat with masters and all these yes. different things. And so you have a, a knowledge beyond what average Joe has, right? Uh, I, I have perhaps knowledge beyond the average person, but more so I have the years of experience. Of just doing it. Yeah. And that's where the value is. The, the book learning is okay. But you got to do it. That's where we learn things. We can, you and I can watch the videos and the YouTubes on how to downhill ski, right? But, but until we do it, yeah, that all that knowledge isn't really worth much. So, in that same sense, I guess, and I was going to ask you this: um, when I first started my journey, because there was a period of time where I would do it, and then I wouldn't. I would just sort of fade away, and it wasn't something I was. I had a disciplined practice type of thing. And then I would notice my anxiety rise and then I'd start meditating again. And this is when I was living downtown San Diego. And so I would go to Balboa Park eventually when it became a consistent practice. I would say almost every day with missing a few days because of being busy with school or other things, I would go, the bells would ring every 15 minutes. And so I'd wait for one set of bells to go and then I'd sit there and, you know, wonder when the hell's these other, you know, at the beginning, it's like, when are these bells going to go off? And what are these people walking by me and all that? But eventually it became this sort of practice. But as I was reading all these things about it, you start finding several different methodologies or several different ways of doing this. And there's mantras and there's transcendental meditation and all of these other things. And I'm wondering if you have any opinion on that, or if you think one is better or worse uh, uh, styles of actually getting in. Cause one specifically, transcendental meditation gets a lot of hype, and I don't know what the hype is about, really. Well, trans, yeah, you know, I'll set that that question aside. Transcendental, transcendental meditation. You might edit that stumble. Yeah. Over, <laughs> TM, as we like to say, TM. no judgments. We're not putting any judgments here. Okay, TM works wonderfully, but let me back up and say that um, the uh, the form of mindfulness that I recommend to the folks in rehab is the one that works just like what you what works for you right and remember you know on default mode our brain the default mode of my brain and everybody listening our brain we go back and we kind of relive the past oh those assholes really f me over you know next time i see them 
you know, I'm going to give him a wide berth or st stick the shiv in him. <laughs> and that doesn't make me, you know, that, that doesn't do a lot for my, uh, my blood pressure. But then, oh, you know, I'm going to run out of money in the future, which is not true. But anyway, but this is what I worry about, right? Right. Living either in the past or the future. Right. And so, you know, uh, I've had meditation teachers who are just gotten sober and got into meditation many years ago say the only safe place for them to be was right here, right now. The past was really messed up. The future is really scary. You know, sitting here with Jay right now, it's not very scary. It's kind of fun. So I'll be present in the present moment. So what does that mean to, you know, what's my favorite form of meditation or mindfulness? I mean, the, you know, for thousands of years, we have practiced mindful walking, mindfulness of stringing beads, of holding beads. I've had professional athletes that cannot sit still, competitive people, cannot sit still in rehab and learn meditation. And so then I said, I brought, you know, I brought the beads from Nepal, but it can be the beads that you put together from your own the local store, it doesn't matter. And then they, you know, they learn to move their thumb and their fingers. It, so are the beads that, the beads are essentially just the thing that's kind of grounding you in the present that moment too, the counting process and right. kind of going through them? Met, you know, uh, mindfulness is very um, sensory driven. So you talked about, you know, watching your breath. So you're feeling a physical, a physical mo motion in and out. It's very calming. You eventually get more of a soothing breath going for yourself. Well, tea drinking, is a very sensory experience. You feel the warm cup, you smell it, you taste it, you feel it on different parts of your tongue. So those are two things, you know, take that sensory approach and apply it to surfing. You've got to be very aware of what you're doing. It's very cold, typically here in California, when you get in the water. It may be hard getting out. So there's a whole host of things, surfing, walking on the beach, swimming, yoga. Those are all very beneficial mindfulness, ways to enter into mindfulness. It doesn't have to be putting on the yoga pants, lighting a candle, and sitting on the beach like you see on the cover of a magazine. It can be sitting in a bus, riding to work, just focused. And that, you know, right. at some point, I know Jay is going to take us into the, you know, the contemplative photography discussion. Uh, it feels like that's where we're going right now. Because well, with I'm all the things that you were listing off, you know, and the... The photography, walking on the beach, what, all of that, something that you and I share. So, wonderful transition. How did I do in my segue? Jump right into it. You know, in the, um, the area of contemplative photography, it's kind of a funky name because it's not really about contemplation or photography. And I'll explain what it is in just a second. In mindfulness, again, you heard about talking about the sensory perception. Tea, we're tasting it. Playing music, we're doing, feeling the physical sensational playing music and hearing it. So there, you know, there's some things going on. In contemplative photography, we're seeing, you know, we're observing what we are seeing and what it does to the narrative in our head. As I was talking with Jay earlier and actually with the class earlier, we saw a piece of trash on the ground uh, today as we were doing a, our contemplative photography practice. And, you know, I asked people what they saw and about a third of them, they knew where I was going with this, but a third of them said, you know, I see judgment. I see anger that somebody threw trash on the ground. I see, you know, we had a vegan with us, a very health conscious lady. She says, I see, you know, uh, American commercialism selling this kind of stuff that we shouldn't be eating. And she knew she was talking about her narrative. It's not what she really saw. It was just a brightly colored, well-designed package, actually, empty package on a 
on a wet pavement that looked really pretty cool because it was red and yellow contrasted to the dark, the dark pavement. And we eventually took pictures of it. So clear seeing is what, that's what we saw. My narrative was all those things those people talked about. I have the same judgments. So clear seeing is what is it? I mean, that's about 80% of our brain en- energy, I think, goes to our, our visual. All these like narratives and stuff? Oh, not that, the well, visual. I don't know yeah, how yeah, much, yeah. Goes, yeah, a lot to the narrative. Yeah. But to the, yeah, to the visual perception, it takes a lot of our brain juice, or a lot of our energy. And so we never step back and look and see how we're seeing and what we don't see, and what we do see, and how it affects us. And that's all being mindful of what your, your visual perception is doing. It's another aspect of mindfulness. I know when I see my dog run to me, you know, I see joy. In the dog? That doesn't in. sound, it sounds kind of strange. I feel joy in myself when I see the dog. Right. Or the dog runs to me and I think, oh my God, he's going to jump on me and I've got really clean clothes on. He's got muddy feet. You know, I see a narrative coming, you know, right. but I don't see the dog clearly. Anyway, it's just, it, it, it's a practice. It's a mindfulness practice to see what, to learn what you're seeing is doing and how it affects you. So how we do it, how, and Jay, Jay's been very much a part of this, and, and I'm going to ask him, I'm going to interview him about how he started his contemplative photography practice before it was established as something now that's gone all around the world. Um, the way we do it in the rehab is we take our cell phones out. At, you know, I teach a little bit. I have some books uh, and show pictures of what other people's uh, look at, you know, what other people have taken pictures of. and it typically. You are looking for contrasting colors, wide open spaces, uh, concentric lines, things that catch your eye. It is not selfies. Uh, it is not street photography where we take pictures of other people in candid situations, all of which I approve of. But in this case, it is just seeing what you see. I mean, as I'm sitting here now talking to Jay, what I see is uh, him mostly in silhouette because he's backlit and uh, and the shadowing in this room is interesting, and the lines are interesting. But how often have in this conversation have I really looked around this room and seen what I see? Not very often at all. But now that I'm talking about it, I'm becoming aware of what I see. Right. So we have in, in, um, in the recovery world, as, as I've taught this, we've had a num- number of people begin to open their eyes to see what they're seeing in their present moment and really calm them down. I mean, I got... They, they did a gratitude practice before Thanksgiving. I got the letters today, and I had a number of people in their gratitude letters write to me about, thank you for giving me the uh, practice of mindful seeing or contemplative photography. It really calms my brain down. Right. It just notice what I'm seeing, and then I see a lot of really pretty things. And so in early recovery, I really believe in this one, and we all have cell phones. And um, I mean, and that's to, to segue into how because you introduced the concept of it to me right and i didn't know what i was doing at the time when i first got sober and i've talked about this before you know i just got out of treatment i've a couple months in i've moved downtown in a little studio apartment i got buddies that are still going out and drinking we're i mean i'm living in little italy and it's the weekend they're gonna go to a restaurant they're drinking they're hanging out i'd go try to hang out for a little bit but there'd be a point in time where i'm just this isn't where I need to be right now. So I'm either going to go back home and just sit in my studio apartment by myself, or I got to figure out something to do. And it was sort of just born out of that. What, there was two things. I had so much anxiety all the time that I 
wanted to find a way just to distract myself. So I would go on walks and it wasn't with the camera. It wasn't with my phone or anything at the time. It was just, I was walking to distract myself and literally to wear myself out so that if I could, hopefully I could get some sleep at night. And then at some point in there, I found this little app on the phone called Hipstamatic. And it was before Instagram and all these other things, or maybe right at the beginning of Instagram, but it sort of it was a like a Helga camera. It sort of modeled one of those and it put a filter on it. And so I would go around and just do like this little point and shoot kind of thing. But I mean, I would probably walk eight to 10 miles a day. I was going all over downtown San Diego, up, around, through Balboa Park. And I would just get lost in this world to where, I mean, I'm in the middle of Fifth Avenue, downtown San Diego, busy street. I'm down on the ground taking a picture of a flower coming out of a crack in a thing because it caught my eye and it interests me. And, and then I want to get down there. And I think, you know, looking back at it now, there was, it's the beautiful part about digital too. You, you see something, it sparks your interest. You can get down and take a picture. And then later you can kind of go, all right, it didn't, it didn't capture what I was seeing at the time, but you still were so immersed in seeing what you were seeing and all the aspects that almost everything else just sort of fades away. And I did so much of that for so long. And then it built into me saving up for a camera and trying to do family photo shoots. I just got done doing some Christmas cards for people. And it's the exact opposite of the mindful practice where I started because it's, it's like staged and I'm trying to put people there and the kids are all over the place and they're screaming and I'm yelling, you know, over here, look over here, over here. So before you came over here, I was just thinking that I have to get back into a practice of just going and doing that again, because that was, I mean, it was one of the happiest times of my life. And not that, I mean, my life is exponentially keeps getting better, but in that space of just something doing that and somehow the peacefulness that comes out of it and all of that too, the pictures that come out of it are better than any staged pictures that I take, you know, I, even when I am with family sometimes, and I get into that little space again, where I'm the shots in between the shots where I see their kid and he's looking at a lollipop. You know, I have one of our mutual friend, Ian, his son's looking at a lollipop and it's one of my favorite pictures, but it was just that moment that I saw something and was just lost in that scene. And then I captured a better picture probably than any of the other stage ones the whole day, you know? So it holds a special place in my heart. I still always tell people early in recovery, if you need something to do and you're bored, Literally, just you take out your cell phone, go for a walk, and see what you stumble into. Yeah, what you can't see now is uh, I'm I'm giving Jay a fist bump, man. That was a great explanation. <laughs> beautiful. It, you know, so not to continue to put it on me right now, but that's what I'm gonna do because it's no, my I, show. It's really well, well. It's your show. Go ahead. What came out of all of that too? What I started to learn through that, and you've brought it up a couple times, talking about judgments and all these things that pop into your head is. I mean, the parallels in everyday life with just doing an activity like this. So you're going out and you're thinking, I'm not good and this picture's bad and all of these other things. And when you start eliminating some of the judgments and you're just doing it for the act of doing it and, and enjoying it and seeing your surround. I mean, I'd, I'd walked same roads, same streets so many times. And then there'd be times when I get in this place where it's just almost a meditative place walking around and all of a sudden like, Roads that I'd walked down a hundred times, I see this whole open other space that I've never seen before. And you just like literally start seeing your world in a really different way than your everyday head down, 
go, go, go. Got to pay the bills. Got to get to work. You know, it's like, how often do you look up and look at the stuff that's around you? You know, you're just going, go, go, go tunnel vision on. So, I mean, all of the photography for me and, and you and I share this place. Cause I mean, you still probably, do you go out almost every day and take some photos somewhere? The, the day? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a thing. I'm sure you incorporate it just because you're happiness and joy that you get from photography and all of that. And I'm sure it's a practice that you do incorporating the mindfulness and all of that. But like the, the lessons that I've learned about life in general, just from photography, pushing through fears and judgments and all of these other things, posting some photos. Sometimes I post a picture that I don't really like, but I post it just to challenge my own judgments and see what other people's response is. And then people, Oh, wow, I like that. I'm like, so my own inner critic, is it te- it's teaching me lessons about how strong that inner critic is sometimes, you know, and it's limiting. I mean, I could go on and on, but I- I'm assuming as you've progressed in your photography, there's things that you've noticed and learned and lessons that have all come out of it too. Um, well, yeah, all of that's true. And I certainly started in the area of contemplative photography. And, you know, for your listeners, that you just Google the phrase because there's websites Facebook pages that we can post to, and you can see what other people are doing. So, matter of fact, in the recovery center, Jay knows this, we've started our own secret Facebook site just for the people that have gone through the uh, recovery center or the people that work there that, that can post to. But there's lots of other ones out there. There's, you know, websites that, that, uh, that focus just on mindful cloud photography or mindful flowers. So, it, it's a whole world of of different things that people just do it for the joy of it. But as to where I'm going with mine is kind of strange in that I, you know, I'm going more towards abstract, abstract art. Uh, you know, it's in my, my list of things to do this year is to become, is to pursue digital art. And it all started with the cell phone camera three years ago. Yeah. And then just kind of using little apps and things in there and getting more into that digital. Right. So I'm going away from the realistic pictures and what I really see, and I'm beginning to create art. And of course, creating art is joyful. Now, you know, what hung me up in doing, you know, poetry or art or music, all of which I've done with passion for years, but always hung me up. And it took me a long time to get over this is how am I going to make a buck on it? Oh yeah. I'm I'm saying it kind of negatively, but I mean that's the way I lived and thought. But you know? why am I why I, am I pursuing this thing? I, I need to make money. Ha- yeah. I need to make money and uh and I don't have an answer for that, but it, that's somewhat fallen away for me. And so I get to enjoy it like Jay was talking about. And it does it does change your perception. It has, you know, I have people now that follow me for the pictures I take. They say we like seeing things through your eyes. And of course Jay knows this is that you think, well, I'm not really that. I haven't changed that much, have I? That really isn't. Don't you see that too? Right. And maybe they don't. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's the way you are living a more awakened, aware, noticing life, and it is pretty darn nice. Yeah. I bet you musicians could talk, tell us the same kind of stories. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, we watched a thing the other day about this. Um, there's a show on Netflix called Abstract, The Art of Design. And it's all follows different designers, but there's a lady, she's, this lady's like an architect, an MD, a professor at MIT, all this other stuff, but she's designing all these interesting things. She was drawing a sketch of something. And I thought, she said, it's a very mindful activity. And then I'd never heard anybody say this, but she said, 
the the sketch tells me what it wants to be and i thought that oh, that yeah. was really cool and now as you're saying that you're kind of moving into from just taking the picture and then you're moving into the digital art of manipulating the photos a little bit more yep. i imagine there's times when you're not you're not set out on like a specific thing you I just start do. tweaking and playing with it and then it emerges and kind of tells you what it wants to be I mean, Michelangelo said, right, they said, how did you get David out of this, this hunk of granite? And he said, I just followed what the granite gave to me. Yeah. He says the same thing. Of course, he's chiseling rocks. Right. I but just, it, yeah, you just kind of go. I mean, even what we were talking about before this, where you're saying 17 years ago, you started on this journey and all you didn't know that you were going to stumble into all of these things, right? No. The tea and the mindfulness and the sound healing and everything that you do. But it's, it's almost like that chunk of granite, like your, your yeah. life, right? Yeah. Like you just keep going and chiseling little things away or whatever. And all of a sudden these, these beautiful things start unfolding around you. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. And to put it in, in give you a perspective, it is pretty amazing. When I got into recovery 17 years ago, I was, you know, a round face, kind of red in the face because of my high blood pressure, coat and tie guy. Uh, you know, I was a, your business guy, your stressed business guy. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what your listeners are thinking of me now because we're talking about meditation and photography and right. tea. Hey, you're looking at a guy that was wearing a three-piece suit for a lot of his life and then, you know, jackets and ties and eventually we got to lose the tie, but a guy was wearing slacks and, you know, and doing the business thing. For, I mean, I'm a career guy in business. Right. How would you, so how would you describe your vibe now? Sitting here, I mean, I could describe it, but how do you feel about it? What do you think your impression you give off is? Uh... Yeah, that's a that's a tougher one that yeah, I don't I actually don't think about it as much as I used to. You're not as like self I'm not aware self, of this kind of like I'm not self conscious as I used to be. I, I do though, you know, what has it what has happened to me is typically I wear shorts. Now I'm wearing blue jeans, but typically I wear shorts and bright shirts. Yeah. I look like it I mean the clients always say, Man, you look like you're on vacation. <laughs> well, and that's kind of the vibe. Like you have I mean, I don't know. I would say maybe it's like a Tommy Bahama shirt or something right. kind of, right? Yeah, you just yeah. kind of this chill guy that a mutual friend of ours, Evan, had said before, like he just likes to be around you and hang out with you because you just have such a positive, happy energy that you give off, right? And right. I and that's something that I wanted to talk to you about too. But sure. just to continue on that space of where you were and where you are now and you know, you, maybe you're not in that corporate world as much and all that other stuff, but do you find yourself more or less grateful now than you were back then? Uh, very much more grateful, very much more peaceful. I mean, I eventually bought a, you know, the blood pressure monitor. I've since lost it because the meditation, you know, brought my blood pressure down and my heart rate down and my anxiety down. I used to put that, you know, the, you know, all these, I had a number of different monitors that I would put on and then meditate and then watch that, that go down. Then I would put the monitors on and get on the phone in a conference call for business and oh, watch wow. everything go back up. And I thought I was, I thought I was, you know, being pretty chill. And so I've worked at it for a lot, for a number of years. But when you say that change, it wasn't, I mean, business is fascinating. I'm not going to badmouth right. that because I, I really do. And I still follow business. I find it. And I occasionally do some consulting. I, th I find it all very fascinating, but, you know, again, it was my reaction to it. My, 
less than. I had to compete. I had to get better. I had to do better than the others. Now the others don't realize how good I am, so I'm angry at them. I mean, all those things. Right. I was always running on all it's back of to that. that narrative that's going on. Kind that, of. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when I got sober, I got the 30-day token in the McDonald's Center, and it said on the back of it, to thine own self be true, which, of course, made me really piss me off because I didn't know myself. I'm 50 yeah. years old. I've got two cars in the garage, a, a home in Rancho Santa Fe. I'm on the outside looking, you know, two, two sons in private school, very successful looking guy. But I didn't know who I was. So as Jay and I sit, as we're sitting here talking about, we're talking about photography and art and tea and, you know, music and sound meditation, all these, you know, marvelous experiences that I never stepped back, slowed down and said, I'm kind of interested in what happens if I go in this store and talk to this Native American looking guy about a flute. Right. <laughs> you I mean, said right before this, you wished you brought your flute to play. Right. <laughs> Right, because I could have done the intro music. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting, like, the old you, right, which is still you and all of that, but whatever your identity or your persona and all of that may have looked at some of these things and been like, you know, if you if the old you could talk to you now, be like, Andy, what the hell are you doing? You oh, know? absolutely. What What is this crap that you're into and all of that? But But to hear you talk about all of it, to see you, to know you, to have experienced some of these things myself too, and to see the change, it's just like, why, why would you not want to venture down these? And for you to say too, I didn't, like, I didn't know who I was or what I liked, and then all of this has been a process of discovery of finding yourself too, and yeah. you just sort of were drawn to these types of things, and they have benefits for your life and all of that. But I imagine, like, as we're talking about the judgments in photography, or, you know, putting walking around doing these mindfulness activities and taking your judgments out of the picture and all of that. It's kind of the same thing with your life too, of what will people think if I am the meditation guy or what will people think if I go down this road and start doing sound healings and playing flutes and banging gongs and all of that. But then it's just sort of like remove the judgment, walk into it, see what it's all about. Maybe you might find that you actually enjoy it or it, yeah, it's beneficial to your life. Absolutely. You know, and it was funny as I run into to, you know, the guys I grew up with are pretty hip guys. I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada, and they say, hey, don't be telling the Vegas boys about this when you come back, right? Right. Because, you know, I've changed so much, but it's, I, it's more who I am, and it's who I always was. Right. I mean, I always liked music. I always liked art. I always liked the sound of a Native American flute. Didn't know I would like slowing down and meditating. That I didn't. I Just never didn't saw even that. know it was a thing you could do. <laughs> I never saw that one coming, right? Yeah. Yeah. All I knew is, is I mean, I, I kind of modeled my life on trying to do what I thought you thought I should do. Right. You never told me what you thought I should do. You never even thought about me. Right. But I thought you were thinking about me. For sure. And if any of that makes sense on the air, you're smarter than I no, am. No, that's that, the way I ran myself. Yeah. That's the saying too. Like what you think about me is none of my business. Yeah. You know, but we're, we all, it's this feedback loop that we're doing all the time. I'm basing my identity more so on what I think you think my identity is than that's right. getting back to this place of who am I? What is my authentic self? Who do I want to be? What do I like? Even if I like things that aren't what the mainstream man should like or woman should, or whatever, what these socially constructed ideas that we have, right? Right. Can I do it because it brings me happiness or it makes me feel good about myself or, you know? I mean, where were you when I was 12 years old? I could have had this conversation. I could have been a lot happier guy, well, Jay. Well, you know, I didn't find any of this out until... I 
10 years ago when I entered my recovery journey too. And that part of that process was literally the same thing. And I've talked about this before. I was sitting at a bar one day looking out the window right across the street from the beach. People are riding their bikes, jogging, flying kites, surfing. I mean, all these things. And I'm inside at the bar drinking. And I'm thinking to myself, shit, man, I don't have any hobbies. I don't even know what I like. If, if there is something I do like or there's something that interests me, I'm not going to try it because God forbid I fail or I'm bad at it, right? So I'm just going to keep myself in this little comfort bubble forever. And, and it's also been sort of like you're chipped away by what society says you're supposed to be and what you can and can't do and all that. And then to me, what I, what I think the pink cloud is that they talk about in recovery when you first get in is that space where for a moment in time, you feel so optimistic in the beginning that like life is starting over and you can change and all of that and the world, all of the discourses and the socially constructed and all the shoulds of who you should be sort of drift away. And then all of a sudden the world starts to pile back on you a little bit. And the job is to like be who you are and forge your own path instead of getting back down the path that your parents told you to be and society told all of that live the life you want to live it'll unfold in a good way, right? Absolutely, it will. And we're both testaments to that right now. So what happened to me one time in a meeting, it seems like it was just recently, but it was probably 12 years ago. I'm watching a guy who's now my sponsor. He's giving somebody else a token for 25 years, some ungodly number of years, sober. And the guy says, yeah, uh, I do volunteer work all around the world, and I find that I'm valued by the people I get to serve. And at the time I thought, I'm sober now. I'm probably sober 10 years or eight years at the time thinking, hey, I, got, I still got some, some stuff I want to do for the world. I want to travel. I want to do things for people. And I was in an emotional funk that day. I mean, you know, it's be careful for what you wish. Because now we fast forward and there's been a whole lot of volunteer work. And I've been to Nepal four times and I've raised $100,000 for students in Nepal. And now I'm starting my own 501c3, which is a nonprofit organization, filed the paperwork two weeks ago. And every morning, I was telling Jay earlier, I wake up with doubts and fears. Should I be doing this? Can I, can I raise the money? Can I organize it? Can I do this? And the reason I bring this up is because you were on that rant about finding <laughs> yourself, right, and, and finding what you want to do and finding out who you are, the authentic self. And I mean, it, People used to say this to me, and I'd say, I would never do that. And the, the never I would never do is do something that scares me, something that I don't know how it's going to end. Right. And Jay, you've done something like that yourself, in that I'm sitting in your studio, which is a beautiful studio. Well, at least all the equipment's very new. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, just keep telling. Yeah, sounds great. No, it is a beautiful, beautiful It's place. a beautiful studio. And I am sure that you entered this with all confidence, all knowledge, and all preparation that a professional man like yourself would. Is that correct? No. The accurate, more accurate statement is I approached it with, what's all the best things that I can buy that's going to make the thing turn out better than it's supposed... Instead of just going into it like, hey, I'll start and figure it out as I go. It was, it was, most of my entering into anything is started by how can I avoid any potential mistakes? But then right. that's what I was talking to you about later, right? Is but I like the process also of jumping into this thing. Yeah, I did research to get good equipment. I mean, that seems like a calculated thing you should probably do. But then right. 
I don't know how to edit. I don't know how to put any of this together. I'm just grabbing people that I know that are interesting and figuring it out. And I mean, I think that's what you're talking about right now too. The yeah, way, with, but I mean, do you doing, have doubts or fears about what you're doing? I, consistently. Okay. And, and, but so that's what I talk to people about is sobriety is a piece of my recovery or sobriety was like maybe for a while, the number one thing in the recovery. Now I don't consider, I don't define my recovery necessarily by my sobriety, even though it's, it's something that I've gone, okay, these substances cause problems in my life and I shouldn't be using these substances anymore. Now I'm trying to figure out how to continue to move through the things that have like limit me in my life. And fear is a huge one in my life. So every step of the way, photography was a huge one for me where it was the first time somebody said, do you do family photo shoots? And then I jumped in, all the fear came. You don't have the right equipment. You don't look, you don't have the right camera. You don't have a computer. You don't, no, no, no. And then I made myself say, sure I do. And then I went out and did it and I edited on an app on an iPad. I mean, I didn't even have like fancy editing, you know, whatever, but it was, here's a place that's limited me my whole life. This fear that gets in the way, the judgments and all the stuff that's, that's sort of closed the door on anything moving forward. And so now I kind of like that process, even though it's, and, and mindfulness to tie it together too, has been a thing that's brought me into being more aware of that process, right? Like before I didn't know that I was driven by fear. Now I can take a step back, slow it down. When I get a new job and then all of a sudden I start telling myself, yeah, you don't need the money and you don't have time for this. And, you, and then I, when I really sit down in the stillness and go, oh, you're scared. You're scared you're going to do a bad job. So go anyway and challenge that. And that's like this. And I'm assuming somewhat of a similar process with you. We were talking before this and you're saying, I was, say, I was joking saying, after I bought all this equipment, I woke up at like three o'clock in the morning and was like, what the hell am I doing? I don't know anything about this. Who's going to want to listen to me? I mean, all of the critic that came in and you were kind of saying, well, yeah, that's like every day. Now that I'm venturing down this, starting this nonprofit, it's kind of the same thing. But you know, what's, what's interesting about, you know, I started in performing in music and some other things. It, it's similar to the, what you're going through. Uh, the fear and you step into it and you have, you get through it. Maybe you even have a success, but that's not guaranteed. But what happens is, and what I was thinking about you and, and this process of putting together a podcast is you said, and this is something that, you know, I'm going to put out, it's going to sit in the back of my mind until I do this too, not put a podcast together, but you know, you've intentionally said, I'm going to interview a hundred people. I mean, I'm saying this to the listeners, not to Jay. That's a fascinating concept because he's going to get 100 people that he finds are of value to talk to that may be interesting, at least to him and probably to other people. Can you imagine having 100 conversations somewhat like this one? I hope, right. they're, I hope they're all better. <laughs> but, I mean, that, you know, throw away all your equipment and everything else. I mean, think how your life is going to be enriched Just to by that, yeah. for, by having 100 detailed where you thought about the people, why you brought them, what you want to bring out and talk to them about, and then what you learn, because you're not always going to hear what you expect to hear. Right. I mean, that's just, that's, you know, when we talk about the byproducts of facing our fears, I don't even know if that's a byproduct. That might be, you know, sitting here today, that looks to me like that might be the total, you know, lodestar of doing this podcast thing is that you get to grow by having a hundred beautiful conversations with people. I mean, because we just don't. When we sat and, and had tea with the guys and the girls today, and we had 
you know, a good hour long, we're just drinking tea, commenting on tea, and having a deep, calm conversation with fascinating, interesting, everybody in recovery, I find to be fascinating people. Right. And I got to do that this morning. And you I, get something out of it every time, I I'm get sure. some. I grow out of it every time. And Jay now is, is consciously going to interview. At least. Uh, that's the, but I the goal say, is to not, not give so much up. In, it's not so much interview either. I mean, I'm calling it an interview. It's really, a, I mean, he told me ahead of time. It's a conversation. Yeah. So you're going to have 100. Okay, and you know what? Just see what comes up. At the end of the day, of course, Jay's going to have, by the time he wraps this project up, he's going to have 1,000 conversations. You, that, and that's the thing that we've been, uh, like a running theme through this whole thing, and not to like put the focus back on me, but that's where I like it. So I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> the, it's, it's not knowing what something is going to be at the beginning, right? And right. taking, w- one of the things that I, and I'll probably say this a hundred times on this thing, on this podcast is in recovery, a lot of people, a thing that keeps a lot of people out is this concept of a higher power and they get their own ideas of God and whatever. I don't believe in God. And so then that's a hard stop, right? On the thing. A thing that I learned through the process, I would consider myself spiritual. I'm, I don't have a concept of an actual God or some, you know, I don't pray to a God, but I learned faith, which to me is like this blind wandering into the unknown, but believing that it's going to turn into something. And, and I've watched, I've held onto that and watched that as I continue to move forward. And lo and behold, February will be 10 years that I've been in this process and it's keeps turning into something better. I, I was telling, um, you met my fiance Carly right before this, and I was vacuuming the house before you came over. And I got hit with this sudden overwhelming joy and happiness, partly about getting to do this with you and sit down, partly about where her and I are in our lives and whatever. But it was the first time I just stopped. I turned the vacuum off. And I told her, this is the first time in a really long time that I'm feeling like happiness and excitement and joy. Cause usually the other shoe, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop too. So I rob myself. The fear comes in. I was thinking about this the other day. Fear is a huge, uh, like robber of gratitude. Because anytime I want to be grateful about something in my life, I also get this fearful thing that something's going to take it away, right? Like something's going to come and rob that of me. So I don't want to stay too open and happy and grateful about everything because God forbid it'll take it all away from me. But like to be able to sit in it now and go, I don't know what's coming down the road, but things keep getting better and it's pretty good and hard stuff's happening too. You know, we people, we, we know pe- people who've passed and being in this recovery community, it's hard, but for the most part, like things keep getting better. And it's just because of, it's a byproduct of that wandering out into the unknown with some faith that it will get better, you know? That's, a, that's, a, yeah, um, that's the best testament to faith I've heard. That's wonderful. Well, I like to, that I could be that. I, I, I'm getting the <laughs> tissues out now. I'm kind of wiping my eyes away. You know, the, the interesting thing about fear, you know, I, I think it actually would be better if we focus the discussion on faith, but I don't have much to add to it. But I can add to the discussion on fear to say that when I finally did my first fourth step where I inventoried my fears, I realized that every decision I had made in my life, remember, I'm 50 years old when I'm doing this. I'm doing this fear inventory. Every decision I'd made in my life, drunk or sober, was fear-based. Yeah. Who I'm going to marry, who I'm, where I'm going to go to college, the job I'm going to take, the car I'm going to drive. It's not based upon the, the, what kind of car I like. It's what I think you think about what kind of car right. I should be driving. 
you're not sitting with what you actually want or what you're actually drawn no. to. It's like convoluted by fear, all this I'm other crap. Fear of judgment. Right. Of selecting the wrong car, wearing the wrong clothes. Fear. Every decision. So crazy. I didn't have to be drunk to make bad decisions. I was sober making fear-based decisions. The alcohol just maybe helps to take away a little bit of the fear sometimes, but it's still there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's just wild. So saying, you know, you can't speak to the faith piece of this um, and- Maybe to kind of wrap, bring it to a close here in a little bit, but something that I know you can speak to and you and I have had conversations is gratitude. And it's a practice. It's a skill, I think. I mean, to be able to stay in a place of gratitude and continue to work, maybe maybe just some final thoughts a little bit on, on what you do. Because I think one of the last conversations that I had with you at the treatment center or something, we were really talking about gratitude and how to stay in that place and where the gratitude starts to sort of slip away and you get back in that mind of, oh, crap, what is this shit, you know? But then bringing it back to really attuning to the things that you have to be grateful about. Well, the, uh, you know, when I got into recovery, my sponsor would always say, give me the gratitude list every day. And I did it intellectually. Okay, I'm grateful I still have a job. I'm grateful I still have a family. I'm grateful this, that, that. And I was... You're just sort of making a list on paper. I I was making a list on paper. So years later, in taking a self-compassion, I mean, I've taken courses in self-compassion, and then later could be able to teach self-compassion in the rehab. There was always components on gratitude. And so I've gone and purchased uh, online teachings, trainings for myself and gratitude. I've bought workbooks on gratitude, and then I've used them in my teachings in the, uh, in the rehabilitation centers. Now, what helps with me in gratitude, and I learned this from courses that I took to teach myself so I could teach others, is that you say, I am grateful for this interview or this conversation. I am grateful for this conversation because it makes me feel, and then you fill in the blanks. And what it makes me feel is it makes me feel happy, enthused, interested, impressed, very protege, you know, it makes me feel a whole bunch of, so I'm very grateful that I get to participate in this. That's kind of a convoluted thing, but you can say, I'm really grateful that I learned about tea as I sit down in the morning and have a cup of white tea, four ounces of white tea in a little Chinese cup. I'm grateful. I like, I've learned to like the taste. I know that it's very healthy for me. I'm grateful for the way it makes me feel. So uh, obviously, you know, gratitude comes down when we're taking pictures. I'm very grateful that we've had rain recently because there's great reflections coming off the buildings and the right. roads. The colors really jump out at you. I was in the desert after the rain and it was foggy and I couldn't see anything, but the, the drab gray looking plants of the desert were bright yellow and red and, and some dark greens. And it was just spectacular. I'm grateful that I'm aware to see that, you know, and that, right. uh, you know, so then I began to feel that physical, emotional sensation of gratitude. And of course I'm pointing up my chest as I say that but I feel compassion in my heart. I feel gratitude in my heart. And I, it's a physical sensation. And so I breathe gratitude in and I track where I feel it in my body. And I'm doing that neural training that we talked about right. early in this discussion, the neuroplasticity, meaning the more we run, run these positive experiences, real or imagined through our, our, uh, our system, visualized or experienced either way, your brain, your brain, your body doesn't know, and so your body's sucking in more gratitude. I'm building more neural pathways of gratitude as we sit here and talk, 
Right. That's phenomenal. And it's making it easier and easier to attune to the things that you're grateful for, right? Absolutely. Once you, I mean, because this is not a thing that maybe some people are just happy-go-lucky and they're paying attention to these things and whatever, but I really think it's a hard thing to sit. When I leave my house in the morning, even though I love my job, at seven o'clock in the morning, I'm still kind of like, oh God, I got to drive a half an hour to Encinitas. And then, but I've started trying to make a place to stop that before I get past this walkway behind me, right? Like right. I, I want to stop for a second and go, I am so lucky and happy that I get to do what I do and sit with the people I sit with and all. And then that changes the whole course of the whole day, right? Yeah. Instead of being like, oh fuck, I got to go drive and work. And then, but it's, it takes, I mean, to tie it back to mindfulness too, it takes a, uh, stopping and being aware and being present and going, okay, I want to, if I'm thinking this way, I want to switch this thought to this thought. And then eventually it's just sort of your default mode almost kind of, right? Like you're just paying attention more often to all the things you're grateful for instead of just the one thing in the day that you're like, well, I guess I had a pretty good lunch today and I'm grateful, but you know, <laughs> but that sounds like the way I started. Right. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. And that's it's, where it's, I mean, it's got to start somewhere, right? Right. And, and mindfulness is, uh, and mindfulness is paying attention to the moment by moment experience in a curious, open and allowing and non-judging manner. It's paying attention, but that's kind of an open awareness. It is also being mindful of the direction. This is a Buddhist definition of mindfulness, the direction you want to go. So you walk out of the house and the direction you're aware of Oh, I got to go to work. So you're aware of your mind state. That's mindfulness. And then you know the intention, your intention or the direction you want to go with, you know, you have a direction. Well, I want to be a man that walks in gratitude. Right. And it changes right then. Yeah. Beautiful. Right? And it's just, and it's but like amazing. You, it's conscious, but you trained yourself. It isn't like you put on the yoga pants and bung, bliss hits. Right. No. You know, to be mindful, to be mindful takes effort. And you did the effort. And that's what, I mean, the connotation of discipline kind of hits people in different ways, right? Yes. Like it's a discipline, but it really, if, if we're looking at it on a neurological level or other thing, it's a, it's, these are, you've built a lot of other habits in your life, right? Some right. good, some bad, whatever, but they all came from repetition. So Correct. to develop some awareness around, well, if I can do this thing and it's going to bring more physical sensations of gratitude and happiness and all that, but it's not something that comes natural to me at first. Well, you keep at it, and then lo and behold, it's something that it's just your default. I yeah, mean, it's I just said the default mode. Right. Yeah. And I, I would do it. It's kind of like you're walking in faith. I would, you know, when, when do I get sober and when do I get gratitude? Right. I don't know when that happens for you, honey, but I do know that we just keep moving in that direction. And one day you look back and go, I haven't thought about drinking in three months. And I've been gratitude for the last th in gratitude for the last three hours. Right. Okay. Well, and we're starting there. Yeah. I mean, so I think that's a perfect segue because I've been in gratitude for the past hour and fifteen minutes. <laughs> okay. For well, you coming to sit here talk to me about all of this, I feel like you and I could talk at length about tons of different subjects. I'm extremely grateful to actually be sitting here doing this with you. The fact that you agreed to do it, the, the fact that you're putting out this knowledge. I mean, like Evan said, just being in your presence makes me stoked, makes me happy. I'm extremely grateful for you to come. Give me your time today after work. So I, I really appreciate oh, it. And thank highlight you of my, Highlight of my day when he called me and said, 
Hama, 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 would you think about doing this? I go, oh, hell yes. <laughs> that is pretty much what you said. <laughs> yes, I'm in. Yeah. Well, awesome. Andy, I really appreciate it, right. man. I'll let you get out of here. Thank right. you so much. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you, Jay. Thank you. Thank you.